0: pretty fun but I keep falling asleep yeah you know? you know I, I gotta I say I though it's good when you find
1: asleep. it's good when you find that that thing that piece of media that is just like a lullaby yeah. you know yeah and you just you, every time you put it on it just lulls you to sleep some movies you put on and you're wide awake but there are some movies which are just like it's like taking z quill you yeah. know and it's like I love when I find one of those because anytime I'm struggling I just put the same thing on and it's
2: like, yeah if anything, it's my curse. I feel like I fall asleep to movies I enjoy and I'm wide awake for shit that's bothering me because I get all fired up and then I like can't fall asleep. Yeah. Look, Ryan, you got to like,
0: get on my program. It's classic Hollywood, the three star film, the genre film. It's not offensive. Yeah. It's not great. You're watching a 1945 noir. You're asleep. You oh, know? dude. Like, yeah. It's totally yeah. well made. Uh-huh. No problems. Yeah. You're asleep.
1: I think too because they, it's just it's like a lot of scenes of just just talking, yeah, you know? yeah. and like <laughs> yeah, it's very not literary. really saying anything complex or interesting. It's just like just cliche lines, you know, and you're just mm-hmm. kind of
0: like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, you know. I'm just like, oh yeah, he's gonna go. Interview another person to figure out the (laughs) mystery. Yeah. Everyone's going to talk in circles, dude. (laughs) I feel like I honestly do like fall asleep in between the breaks. I'm like. He finishes like interviewing someone, and I'm just like, as he's traveling, I'm I'm nodding. (laughs) An establishing shot. All it takes is one good establishing shot to put me out. You know, (laughs) I get it, man. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the
1: things straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and
0: create an impassable barrier—a gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you
2: to a duel i the truth, this guy's starting to get online. my
1: <laughs> You want to them? They but they
2: are we we let them
1: hot. out there. Let's, we all walk
0: out there very,
1: very, very
0: hot. Open fire! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and as always, I'm here with... Andrew Stasioulis. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast where one of the hosts picks a topic and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that topic and we get on here and we run the Gauntlet. It's episode 25, Dune, and I asked the guys to bring me films with dunes in them, big big heaping piles of sand and they really delivered as far as uh, that's concerned. We've got two movies this week full of sand, full of dunes and, uh, Fun in the sun. Yeah, a lot of, yes, a lot of fun in the sun. That's a good way of putting it. So we're going to start, I think, uh, with Andy. I want you to tell us about your film because it starts with the desert, whereas Ryan's film kind of takes, you know, a few minutes to get to the desert. So I'm going to dock him a point <laughs> uh, on this. And, For
2: my, uh, my three-minute <laughs> prologue?
0: Oh, it's like 20 minutes. Give me a break until oh. you see a dune, you know? It's
2: okay, it exactly- <laughs>
0: I was clocking it. I was thinking, "Where are the, where are the dunes? You know, where are they?" Uh, and then they came, and boy, there was a lot of them, and they were beautiful. <laughs>
1: I like starting in a position of power already over. Yeah. Ryan, so, <laughs> so I feel good about this. When you gave us the prompt, I um, I had sort of kicked our, kicked around a few different movies. Uh, there's so many great movies out there featuring big heaping piles of sand. And then turned to a movie that had been in my mind for a while, a movie that I've told you both about before, and, and one that I was sort of looking for an opportunity to, to bring to the pod. And this, of course, was, was the perfect moment for that. Uh, so I brought a very, I think, uh, weird and fun movie, a Russian film from 1969 called The White Sun. Of the Desert, uh, directed by Vladimir Motel. Uh The White Sun of the Desert first popped into my uh, radar when I had discovered that the Russian Space Agency had a tradition, a tradition that before every single launch since 1973. The night before the launch, all the Russian cosmonauts sit down and watch this movie, The White Sun of the Desert. So I was like, what the hell is that? The, the cosmonauts watch this movie? And I, I read about it and was like, I got to check this thing out. So this is a film about a Red Army soldier, Comrade Sukhov, who is wandering around in the middle of the Russian Civil War Uh, in Turkmenistan, and he seems to be, like Odysseus, wandering home. He's searching for home, and actually there is a very brief prologue that isn't in the desert, uh, where we see this idyllic, green, lush, Russian countryside and a beautiful woman carrying a a pail of water and tending a garden. And then, bam, we instantly cut from that to our character Sukhov laying in a big heaping pile of sand. (laughs) He is so far from that lush greenery and he's trying to get home to his wife, we discover. So, en route To uh, return home, to get back to this lush green countryside, he has to trek across hundreds of miles of of sand dunes in uh, Turkmenistan along the the Caspian Sea. And while en route on his way home, he discovers a man buried up to his neck uh, in the sand. And against his better judgment he does decide to to help this dude out and that begins his his great delay this this delay in his journey home where he then gets wrapped up in a uh <laughs> a mission to protect and escort a group of women who are the the many wives of of a bandit who's been fighting against the Red Army in Turkmenistan. Uh, it's it's this guy Black Abdullah, as he's known, and it's it's his harem, and he has left them behind while running away from the the Red Army cavalry. So the Red Army cavalry then takes Sukhov and basically say, Comrade Sukhov, before you go home, we need you to take care of one last mission. Uh, can you help uh, escort these women to safety? And he again, reluctantly agrees to, but does agree because, of course, he cares about his duty and honor as a hero of the revolution. So, he then gets wrapped up in this um, mission to sort of protect these women from, from Abdullah, who does return, and, and it's basically a Western. And many of its influences are are American Westerns, and it's it's actually referred to as an Eastern or uh, an eastern western. It's it's uh, an adventure film in the middle of uh, the desert. Uh, it's super fun, it's super weird. It's uh, it's it's especially weird when you consider that since 1973 every Russian cosmonaut who has gone into space has done so only after
0: watching this film. Well, now that we've seen it, uh, when do we get to go to space? Yeah, yeah that's good what question. I don't know. Well, thank you for that uh, wonderful description. Ryan, why don't you tell us about the sandy journey
2: you took us on? So I brought a film that's also from 1969 from South Africa by the director Jamie Ace, who is more popularly known for directing the film The Gods Must Be Crazy and its sequel. Before he had that smash hit, he made a film starring his son, Durky Ace, in a film called Durky.
0: It's also known as Lost in the
2: Desert. Also known as Lost in the Desert. So when I came across the film, I wasn't entirely sure if it was exactly what I was looking for. I was intrigued by the poster of a young Durky carting a suitcase with his dog across the barren Kalahari desert. And, though I was initially hesitant, the decision was made for me when I came across the shocking image of a young derky completely swallowed up by the sand of the dunes. Uh, not to bury the lead, no pun intended as our dear friend Andy would say. <laughs> so the story of Durkey is about the titular Durkie, who is a sickly lad who sits around at home with his father, who is a classical pianist, as he's trying to teach his son the ways of the piano, while his rascally old uncle, uh, Uncle Pete, comes in hot to the scene and decides to take Durkie out to the, to the Kalahari to give him a, a taste of the rugged landscape out there. And as they're out traveling the desert in his uncle's plane, he has a coronary. And they crash. They crash land in the desert. And the uncle, alas, is dead, leaving durkey abandoned with his dog and just a few belongings. Durky is able to send out some radio transmissions out to his father to let him know of the state of everything. However, Uncle Pete was traveling off course, and they don't know where durkey is. Thus begins two threads here where Durkee finds himself fending for his life out in the desert up against all the different various wildlife that are inhabiting the Kalahari as he tries to scrap together some food and water for both himself and his dog. And at the same time, his father is leading a quest to track down Durky in the desert and fearing that Durkey, with his sickly cough and his uh, doubtful will to live, because he's not entirely sure how much Durky knows that he loves him so dearly, becomes a, a great source of emotional tension for for his father, and um, that's really it. The majority of the film is dedicated to Durkee as he, as he fends for himself out there in the, the harsh and rugged landscape. And over it all are the red dunes in the distance, this foreboding red dunes that are both calling out to Durkee and warning him of the dangers ahead. Worth pointing out as well, one of the key elements of this film is that Jamie Ace, the director, plays the father in this film, and his son Durkee plays Durkee as well. So it is a true <laughs> father and son project. And he really he really puts his son through the ringer. I'll tell you what, but we'll we'll detail yeah. the trials that mm-hmm. Durkee has to face out there in the the desert.
0: There are some disturbing psychological implications uh, about Durkee oh, yeah. the film yeah. that we will certainly get into. But I want to start of course by trying to connect these films, or at least reflect on the topic, right? So, uh, obviously, these are both desert films, and we have two main characters wandering through the desert. Although it did strike me that the desert in Durkee is kind of the, you know... Antagonist? Yeah. <clears throat> The antagonist is the <laughs> desert. And that's not really the case uh, in White Sun of the Desert, where the desert is unforgiving, but it's more of the backdrop. Although there are also, I think, some deeper sort of implications as to both of these characters being out of place and far from home in more ways than one uh, especially when we consider the countries that uh, these films were made uh, in and from
1: but yeah in in the case of Durkey, the the you know the the dangers are are just that they're rooted in in trying to survive in this landscape against nature against you know the the elements Whereas in The White Son of the Desert, though the desert is a tough landscape to, to sort of try to just traverse and, and get across, the dangers are, are much more uh, human, uh, mm-hmm. shall we say. And
2: counter-revolutionary. And yeah. counter-revolutionary. Worst of all,
1: <laughs> and counter-revolutionary.
2: Yeah, in White Son of the Desert, they have a little... Set up. You know, they're pretty well established, their base out in the desert, while Durkee truly has, has nothing and himself has to sort of absorb as, a, you know, they would say in Dune 2021. He has to absorb the desert power <laughs> uh, in order to in order to make do. Yeah, I think, too, that, the, you know, clearly, as, as I mentioned
1: in my intro, like this film was designed to be like a Russian you know, like a Cold War cinematic response to the American Western. Uh, And so I think in part, like, they they simply chose that landscape they chose that area to set the film in to 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 tie it to like the american southwest you know like hey we've got our own you know desert we've got our own yeah.
0: west we've got right? our own frontier
1: yes you know? but for for them it's the east you know and the and the southeast particularly but yeah i mean it's it's a very conscious choice i mean the director has said like his influences were were John Ford and, uh, and, and, you know, I think he specifically also mentioned High Noon. So the films of John Ford and High Noon were, were very well in his mind for, for the making of this film. And I
0: think on that note, I was struck by how, I guess, uh, off ideology- Some of the film was uh, actually quite a lot of the film, specifically because it has this kind of individualistic hero at its center. You know, the film feels like a spaghetti. It's like Comrade Stukov wanders into this quote unquote Mm -hmm. town, which is the desert, uh, and, you know, gets into one of those classic uh, setups, you Mm -hmm. know, where he's caught between these forces and is trying to make the best of it, you know.
1: And there was like a whole cycle of, you know, spaghetti westerns uh, that specifically sort of focused on, like, you know, the Mexican revolution and these, like, opposing forces like that, uh, that I, I do believe also was was probably an influence on, on the filmmakers, and and particularly for Russia at the time, because, you know, as we know, Marsh, you know, all those spaghetti western directors were all communists. That's true. So I think a lot of those ideas translated very naturally to to uh to the white son of the desert
0: Yeah, I read that the censors had 27 objections to the film, but through a a stroke of luck, it was seen by Brezhnev while he was vacationing, uh, and he loved it. And so the film was released without any changes. So there were 27 things that were objected to. And I I (laughs) imagine, you know, we can maybe get into some of those things. But it was interesting. Yeah, you know, you expect, you know, a film in this era uh, to be, yeah, you know, towing a certain line or saying a certain thing. Thing, and this film you know defied my expectations yeah. uh, in that sense
1: I, I think it's it's that's also where a lot of the comedy lies because yeah. it is it is a very sort of comedic, Tone that that sort of surrounds the film. It's it's a very almost sardonic approach to to that kind of stuff, to those politics. Yes. And there's a lot of sort of jokes made about that, about you know the revolution and and sloganeering. You know this this character of Sukov. You know he's described as just like the ultimate Red Army soldier and someone devoted to the cause. And uh, as I mentioned, you know as he as he sort of is tasked with taking over this harem this group of wives that belong to Abdullah, like one of the first things that he does is explain to them that now they're, they're liberated women of the revolution that they no longer have to suffer. And on top of that, like as he takes these women and he sort of situates them in this, Sort of like old fortress that they they find out in the middle of, of the desert. Uh, he very quickly puts up revolutionary slogans, like puts up signs everywhere, and like uh, the the place where the women are being housed is is labeled the dormitory for liberated women of the East. And inside of there, there's another sign that says, "Down with prejudices." woman is a human being too, <laughs> you know, and it's like they have these sort of like very funny kind of slogans that quickly get put up, and I again, I think it is like this sort of winking kind of approach to that more propagandistic side of, the revolution and and certainly like the early days of the revolution because there's a lot of humor in here about about that particular period of the revolution those trying to move forward and and even some characters
0: sort of stuck in the past gulping down caviar <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah I
2: actually yeah it, and it's it's sort of that quality that made it slightly difficult for me to read the humor of the film at times because I agree there there is all these elements that make it clear like this thing just sort of barely got through past the censors right like I it doesn't surprise me that they had 27 objections to the film but at the same time it does feel like something that made it through the censors right Mm -hmm. like it has a very much this orientalism attitude um about it about Russia's relationship with you know their sort of colonial outposts but at the same time there yeah there is this like there's this tension of what's considered progressive and what isn't um, and then also what they choose to make light of through comedy and what they don't and the film the experience of watching it is strange in relation to that too because there's not a ton of music cues and there is also a very like deadpan attitude to much of it but at the same time then there are those spaghetti western kind of suave qualities that sneak their way into and it's a very painterly film at the same time too it's not a rough looking picture right it's 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 it's, it's 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 like a gorgeous like beautifully composed piece. And I just, yeah, I, for some reason, all of those elements put together in a stew, it was an odd viewing experience. Like, I never yeah. knew when I should be laughing. Like, I was like, what are, like, when are the cosmonauts having fun? That's what, yeah. You know, <laughs> some of that was lost on me not being a cosmonaut myself, you know? You know, it is, I,
1: I would say, because I had seen this you know, before many years ago. And I remember the first time I saw it, I, I think I ended up watching it on YouTube. Like that was the only place I could find it. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking to myself, like, is this some sort of like butchered upload? Like, is this some like butchered version of the film? Because I remember at times feeling like this feels very choppy to me, like some of the the cutting yeah. and, and stuff like that. And lo and behold, rewatching it, uh, no. I mean, this was the exact same version I'd seen. So I'm assuming like this is the version that is, is out there. And again, you know, talking about the sensors, I think it's, it's also like important to point out that even prior to that, it had a sort of troubled pre-production that there were several other directors who were offered the project. We were sort of talking a little bit about this off camera. And I think it's just, it's very interesting to point out that that, that two of the directors who passed on the film, you know, one of them is uh, a filmmaker that yes, Marsh and I both know you're you're quite a fan of, Ryan. Uh, Andre Konchalovsky.
2: I don't know if I would say I'm like this great fan of his. I like some of his work and I, I once, Talked to him as he was sipping down some vodka in q and A, Q&A pretending it was water. But uh, <laughs> <I wouldn't laughs> yeah, he's your best like, friend like, now. Yeah. I wouldn't call myself like a Konchalovsky acolyte or anything. <laughs> You're just a runaway train head.
1: So it, it's he was offered the project and and uh, he apparently read the first script and said it was fucking garbage. And he was like, hell no. And then it was also offered. I don't know if you two discovered this to Andre Tarkovsky. Andrei Tarkovsky was also offered this film to to direct it and he turned it down and I didn't discover like why but I can well, I can assume why
0: because yeah, it's not his film <laughs> it yeah. Is, yeah it is
1: definitely not a Tarkovsky film that's for sure but then even then uh, apparently like there were several rewrites and then this was given to to Vladimir Motil and Vladimir Motil who I, you know, didn't, I've never seen any of his other films. I think this is the the biggest thing he ever made or the one film that only is, people yeah. really know him for. Uh, but apparently even he was like, I don't want to make this movie. But, you know, the Soviet state cinema and everything, they were basically like, okay, well, if you don't direct this, you're not going to direct anything else. So he was like, <laughs> from what I understand, he was kind of like, I had to direct it. Otherwise they weren't going to let me direct any other films, you know, because because Konchalovsky and, and Tarkovsky passed on it, so it was tasked with him. And then there were, like, multiple rewrites that were required even before they got to that point of, of like, objecting to to what was actually in the film. And then discovering more about the production itself, it sounds like it was a very chaotic... Production. Yeah, there were deaths that I, I read. Yeah. So so I think that the 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 choppiness of it and at times the sort of like uneven feeling of its construction are are because of <laughs> the specter of
2: death that was hanging over the production.
1: Spectre of death, you know, state censors looking over everybody's shoulder. I mean, who knows what kind of cuts were probably right. made that no one's even ever like heard about, right? But in mm-hmm. spite of that, like there is this very There's just something so charming about it. Like, I I understand why this is one of the most popular films in Russian cinema history. I mean, it was a huge
2: hit. Mm -hmm. It does seem to be reinforcing an element of Russian identity, in the sense of, um, like, a Russians abroad, Russians in unknown lands, and sort of, like, holding on to their core values and putting that stamp on the into the dune itself, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that the cosmonauts would be watching it as they explore, you know, the great unknown of, of space. Yeah, I guess, too,
0: like... What I found interesting, in a sense, was, yeah, obviously it is, you know, this kind of, like, dealing with this imperialistic aspect of the Russian Empire slash the Soviet Union. Because ultimately, it's this kind of continuation, which is interestingly depicted in the film by the former, you know, disgraced Czarist customs official. Vereshagin. Yeah, Vereshagin. The way, like, it's obviously, yes, it's like a comedy. It's like a parody. It's very satirical and I guess yeah one of the things that really struck me in that regard is its attitude towards this quote-unquote liberating of the east like because on the one hand like comrade Zhukov is a saint he's like the he's the greatest I fucking love him you know but the what the film depicts is a bunch of people resisting their ideology and their liberation And it leaves it at that. Again, you know, we've been talking a lot about conversion on this podcast recently, but the harem, they don't just embrace, you know, what Sukhov is saying to them, like, you're all (laughs) free, you know? And they're like, what? No, what? Like, yeah, they,
1: in their understanding, now see him as their new master, their new husband, and that they are now his wives. And he, of course, you know, has to sort of explain to them that he has a wife at home and in the revolution, you know, that women are now free and they work free and there's some really funny scenes where he is trying to explain that to him and, like, there's one in particular, a young wife, uh, is her name and he kind of takes her aside and is sort of like, you're the bright one, I want to explain this to you or something like that, you know, and he kind of goes through it with her and then she immediately runs to other wives and says, I'm his favorite wife. <laughs> He's just declared... His favorite wife, and so there are these kind of like humorous uh uh, collisions there that, yes, do Marsh. When you pointed out, sort of like hide a much you know darker reality that's at play here, which was that, yes, even though they did in Turkmenistan, like the Soviets, you know, particularly saw themselves as a liberating force, there was a lot of resistance, and it led to some like pretty awful massacres (laughs) in that area that aren't really touched upon
0: uh, at all because it's, you know, it's supposed to be a lighthearted entertainment film. And even Saeed, you know, who is uh, ultimately, yeah, as he's rescued by Sukhov in the sand, he becomes this like magical protector of him sort of throughout Mm -hmm. the film. But even he ultimately refuses to join the cause and refuses to give an inch because he, of course, has dedicated his life to revenge (laughs) Mm -hmm. yes yeah (laughs) he won't he won't budge on that and he's having he's having nothing of you know sukov's communist advances
2: At the same time there's those those old men like just like the sage elders of the east that are entirely indifferent to everything that's going on they never move from their position one man stays asleep the entire time yeah there is this element where there are those resisting and then others who just like don't accept any sense of liberation at all because to them it's just a complete farce
0: right and especially in light of what they do show you which is like yeah there's a customs house here like the empire was here uh the czar was here you know so it's this like continuation of imperialism colonialism whatever you want to call it and yeah it's like I love those old guys too right they have no lines in the film it's like these three old guys and one of them just says we've been sitting here a long time (laughs) Uh, and that's like their only (laughs) Line in the film, and they are just, yeah, completely indifferent to. Sukov versus Abdullah versus the Red Army versus the museum curator yeah. <laughs> or
1: whatever. And, and as Ryan points out, like one of them humorously sleeps through everything, including explosions and gunfire and right. cavalry storming over this fortress machine, you know, machine guns rattling off. Yeah, it's it's it is funny, but it, it's like it, it is, a, a, I think, a very playful exploration of like cultures and culture clash in a very kind of russian way and it does i think like lovingly kind of like poke fun at both like the revolution and yeah. you know the the former empire and the nostalgia yeah. for for that because as you pointed out this character vereshagin who is this, uh, this former Tsarist customs officer, you know, he's this like lonely guy that, you know, was, was once a proud officer in, in, in the Tsar's empire, right. In the imperial army and his home in this like God forsaken, you know, bit of, of, of desert is just filled and adorned with all these pictures of, you know, the old empire and himself mm-hmm. in his uniform and at balls and and you know his wife in lug- luxurious gowns and he is this character that's so sad uh, on a certain level right he's just like drinking the biggest bottle of vodka I've ever seen yeah. and eating from like a bowl a, a massive bowl of caviar you know I wrote caviar problems but even he you know he isn't treated as like a buffoon he he is like respected uh, a respected man you know he's this guy that yes he longs for the empire but he's sort of like accepted that it's it's over even if he is very sad and and he he misses
0: those those glory days he does say uh reds or whites, I don't care. <laughs> and he's just sitting in his house with a machine gun and a wife. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, he's like also this like sort of pseudo kind of black market arms dealer now, right? Yeah. So he has, he has weapons that are being sought after by both sides and he deals with with both sides. And his like turn is, is really like the question of whether he's going to remain neutral, remain this sort of capitalist pig or get in line and help the revolution, you know, help help the, the the Reds. But I also wanted to point out again, talking about like the, the weird sort of troubled aspect of this production. He's a very interesting guy, the actor, who I've never obviously, I've never seen him in anything else, but his name is uh, Pavel Luspakaev. Uh, is his name. And apparently he was a veteran of the Second World War and he was wounded like horribly, which ultimately resulted in him later in his career, shortly before making this film, having to get both of his feet amputated. And yet in the film, like he's he's running around and apparently the director originally wrote the character of Bereshagin to be like a sort of like wounded you know, an old wounded guy and he was going to be on crutches. And the actor was like, absolutely not. Like, that's not the persona I want to put out anymore. So they they gave him these prosthetic legs. And so he's performing like, and they said it was like great pain for him to be like running around. Cause he's like a physical like, force. There's like action
0: scenes. Yes. And yeah. he's mm-hmm. doing so
1: on like two prosthetic wow. like limbs. That's crazy. But also um, there's a scene where he gets cut. Uh, in later in the film, there's like this, this violence, there's this action going on in a boat, and he gets cut by like a shard of glass. And what I discovered was, that wasn't originally in the script, but apparently, the night before they were shooting this scene, he was at a bar, and and the production apparently had what was described as security issues. And there were all these, like, criminals in Turkmenistan who were just kind of hanging around the production and at points trying to extort them, stealing things from the set, so much so that they had to, like, hire this, like, criminal, like, boss and give him a part in the movie. So one of Abdullah's, like, officers is played by a guy who was, like, this gang leader in the Turkmenistan well, that's underground classic
0: movie making right, right
1: there. Right. <laughs> but this actor who plays very like the night before the scene, they were at a bar and apparently a huge knife fight broke out and he got cut by like, try. he just dove into the fight because you know, he's a big burly tough guy and a veteran of world war II, So he jumped into the fray and he got sliced across his face with a knife So in that scene, they had to write in him getting cut in the face because it's a real cut that he got the night before in a knife fight in a Turkmenistan bar. (laughs) Just like reading about the production, there was just like so many of these wild fucking stories that, again, to me, contribute to this like really like the film feels like a chaotic kind of melee.
0: Yeah, I mean, as Ryan noted, it is a beautiful, colorful, and well-composed film, but it is kind of hacked, hacked up in a kind of awkward way, I think, and it does have the classic pan and zoom sort of 70s style of action filmmaking, which you know has its uh, strengths and weaknesses, I think.
1: But it does also, I think have in spite of that a very interesting uh, construction because one of the things that to me does stand out in, in a in a way that I think like adds to uh, adds to the film is we're constantly cutting, back to Russia uh, in that prologue where Mm -hmm. Sukhov is dreaming of his wife. And there are some really kind of like poetic moments where... In the middle of this desert, in all this violence, in all this chaos, in all this like revolutionary fucking goofiness that's happening, uh, he's like dreaming of his wife in these very like idyllic kind of moments. And he's composing letters to her in his head.
2: So he's constantly writing to his dear wife. Really touches on what you were speaking before with that nostalgia, that Russian nostalgia that permeates the film. And there's through him and through those letters, there's a bit of nostalgia for a time. Of hopefulness for the revolution, because one of his first letters that he writes to her too is that. Worldwide liberation is soon, so I should be on my way home any day now. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's like one of the first things we hear from his letters to his wife. And then, yes, they do follow, they're all like so eloquent and beautiful, but there is like both with that his dream of Russia, right? She is this like idyllic image of she's got like a bright red outfit on. She's got two buckets of water that she's carrying, you know, across on her back, like in this like lush meadow, green Russian landscape. And and he's reciting to us these like dreams and beautiful things that he's writing to his wife. And then that's, you know, in contrast with the dusty, harsh desert and the hot sun that seems to be like, you know, directly overhead throughout the entire film, not a cloud in the sky.
1: But I think, too, that's that's where some of the clever uh, criticism of the revolution also comes in because there is a contrast, a very deliberate contrast between what he's saying to her, what he's composing to her and the reality, (laughs) right? So even when he's talking about, you know, yep, the worldwide liberation is at hand, we're still stuck in the middle of a violent civil war that he's lost in, you know, as cavalry are going to and fro, fighting these guerrillas, fighting these bandits. And of course, the film being made in 1973, where- There was
2: no
0: worldwide
1: liberation.
2: (laughs) Right. No, and I think the film is very aware of that. I wasn't trying to accuse the film of that. It's more that his character is like representing a bit of this nostalgia that is clearly being subverted by the fact that it's a disaster out there yeah. in the desert and all of his undertakings. Yeah, it's
0: a common... Like, the whole thing is, like, a comic ironic
2: mm-hmm. construction
0: right. of this mm-hmm. revolutionary moment. And I guess, like, yeah, because it's it's very aware that it's yeah, an early 70s film, so what does this mean to a Russian audience, you know, when they're, like, aware of everything that's happened? Yeah. You know? So, yeah, it's, like, it's kitsch now, you know, or Exactly.
1: Whatever. And there's also, like, some funny bits where, like, he's also excluding certain details to his wife. So, for example, even when he gets attached to these the this harem of beautiful women who are are throwing themselves at him, uh, when he's composing the letter to his wife, he doesn't say, okay, I got to take care of these nine, you know, women from a harem. <laughs> he says, specifically, I'm charged with escorting comrades east. You know, like right, that's all yeah. he says. And there's a lot of that, you know, where he's he sort of he's he's not exactly telling his wife the full story. And I think that's also part of the Russian humor that it's like, he, yes. it's easy for him to fall back on these like revolutionary slogans
2: instead of actually telling his wife you know what's really going on yeah i mean to be fair he does refer to all of them as comrades every time he is like directing them and asking them to do things but that's also sort of him relying on that vernacular as like a crutch in order to like maintain his like power and his own like idea of how he should be conducting himself amidst all these women yeah it's crazy when he's first sort of escorting them and he he accuses them of uh, he says you should have finished off your exploiting husband. He like you can't believe that they didn't kill him uh, as mm-hmm. as Black Abdullah was was fleeing uh, once the the Russians were had arrived.
0: I want to I want to talk a little bit more about Abdullah because again this is another interesting contrast with Sukov uh, and he being this kind of like before we even see Abdullah right there's talk about him. He's this. You know, menace, right? And he is, yes, leading a counter-revolutionary bandit army, uh, as happened uh, at the t- at the time. It, they, the film does an interesting thing, which is it really, it really does. <laughs> it doesn't villainize him in a in a cheap way. It actually, like you know. You know, gives him props. Right. Uh, And there's this uh, scene where Abdullah sort of like lays out his backstory and his life philosophy as their Saeed's been captured by the bandits and they're sauntering through the desert. But yeah, he talks about, you know, how when his father died, uh, God then told him to to take uh in this life or whatever. Uh and he does have, yeah, this very like horrifying relativistic mindset, but where he says, you know, kto na Kingel harsh для того, кого он есть. В нужное время. The dagger is good for the person who has it, right? And that's sort of his philosophy. And so it does give him kind of like it puts him on equal footing with Sukhov. He's just a complete reactionary, sort of like God, t- God told me to plunder or whatever. Yeah. Like <laughs>
1: And even Saeed, even Saeed like tells Sukhov, like, because Sukhov at a certain point is is like, <laughs> yeah, we we this 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 bandit. Abdullah and Saeed like corrects him and says, he's not a bandit. He's a warrior. Right. So like, even from Saeed's perspective too, it's like, it's easy to call a guy like a, you know, he's like some cheap criminal. And it's like, it's, it's, it's much deeper than that. And he's not a man to be taken lightly. And you're in you his know? country. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it does like try to sort of steer clear of, of, I think even portraying him as, as like, excessively cartoonish. I mean, he is villainous and, you know, he is this sort of like figure of the Orient, but I think some of the other players are, are far more caricatured, including like, uh, an ex Russian officer. He's a white Russian, you know, that, that is, is allied with them as well. And he is far more like underhanded and, uh, viewed as, I think more of a, a, a betrayer, a traitor, yeah, Abdullah has a has a perspective, whereas you know this other white Russian officer is just a piece of shit. You know, yeah,
0: that guy, get yeah, out of here.
1: Exactly. It's such an interesting film, you know, from the perspective of like not uh, seeing a lot of Russian films like this. You know, for for me anyway. I mean, I know that there's so much Russian cinema we've we've never seen and probably never will see. <laughs> yeah, but but I've I'd never quite seen a russian film that was so deliberately trying to speak to um the american west and the american western you know and so mm-hmm. for me i think that's like so much of what uh what makes this film just a very like just a very like wonderful kind of experience you know to see sort of russia doing their version of it and doing it in a way that is like it is as you said, Marsh, it's like very ironic, you know? And I think that's what I, I've I've always like really appreciated about about this movie and rewatching mm. it again, picking up on so much more of that,
2: that humor. The first time I saw it, I was just kind of like, This thing's a mess, but I think one of the interesting things too that it it subverts and tries to sort of present itself as this unique object is, as opposed to it being simply like a desert outpost surrounded by hills of dunes, there is a lot of stuff dealing with the water, as you had mentioned with like the sequence on the boat where he, he is gashed but when you are in the dunes it seems like they tower all around you and that there is no escape you have these like a desolate blue sky without a single cloud to be seen towering golden dunes but then every now and then we end up by the sea which is like glittering and like turquoise and it's just like every now and then they'll just jump in spread their arms and you know really cool down this like brief escape that they have um just at least from the heat and you know from being stuck at these this just this like sandy outpost and that is like something that i found to be like unique and distinctly different from the types of films it was riffing on like like men out in the desert like there's no water to be had it's you know exhausting and dry and um i did discover that uh, it
1: created a lot of problems again on the production that I don't think that they had foreseen apparently. Filming the dunes, they said was such a nightmare in this production because you know and these are the I think the little details that sometimes people don't sometimes think about, but uh, because of these wide like sweeping shots, you know they they said you know everyone has to, like walk in these huge circles around whatever they're shooting in extreme heat and in these awful
0: conditions. Yeah, because you can't Mm -hmm. leave footprints and you can't be in the shot. So like you have to walk how far just to do another setup. I mean, it's
1: horrible. Yeah.
0: It's terrible.
1: I mean, this is, again, going to the prompt, I think, you know, (laughs) something that maybe people don't necessarily appreciate who don't really think about, you know, what it takes to capture these beautiful shots of pristine dunes but it's like a lot of suffering on the set to like do those you can't just go and rake sand dunes between takes very easily so apparently there were a lot of people passing out uh on the crew because they didn't quite account for for how they were gonna get those beautiful
2: shots right yeah i can't even imagine
1: and i'm sure a lot of them were jumping in the
2: jumping in the ocean <laughs> yeah, for sure tanks, yeah, t- cool t- taking down. a dip to escape the, the hell of the production yeah I mean our other film uh, Dirky does make it quite clear how difficult it is to traverse a dune uh, simply just to go over it and how even with a vehicle that is just like an insurmountable task at times so the idea of like lugging camera gear around and wrangling extras and like setting I mean because there are like battle sequences I mean uh, of course in those sequences you don't have to worry too much about footprints because it's chaos but regardless it's a large. It's a large cast. There's a lot of moving pieces, and the idea of having to do all that on hot dunes, I, I can't even imagine. One thing that I
0: want to sort of connect the films with that I find interesting, because again, both both of these films are ultimately about. Characters that want to go home. Uh, And as you guys so eloquently (laughs) described in White Sun, you know, there's these sequences of the idol, Russia, the motherland, my wife, my farm, our farm, you know, all that stuff. Then you think about Dirk. And you think about the representation of home and South Africa in Durkee. And honestly, it sends shivers up my spine. Because really all we see are just these crammed, disgusting interiors with no sense of space or place. I don't know what South Africa looks like. If I was just to go off this film... I know it looks like a guy who looks like William H. Macy playing the piano (laughs) with a window behind him. And that's about all you see of of South Africa. It truly is. At least the urban or whatever. Like you obviously see the Kalahari Desert most of the movie, but it is cutting back and forth between the two. And I was thinking how funny it is this like the great pains, obviously, you know, that White Sun went to to show this what he's dreaming of what he's going home to versus yeah the flat kind of inner cutting of Durkey to
2: uh, just these just like the the bureaucratic yeah. offices or just this like you know kind of like chill apartment with a piano and lots of books on the wall I mean even when durkey's up in the air with his uncle as they're like above South Africa his uncle makes an offhand remark see the foul air you people live in hmm yeah. You know, before they reach the Kalahari Desert, it's a yeah, it's a film that does not um, think of South Africa in the same like lush, beautiful, idyllic way that uh, White Sun thinks of of the motherland. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. Yeah, no. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's not it's not just a, a milk, honey, and a hammer and sickle, and your buxom wife carrying yeah. pails of water.
2: You know, and then there is a weird moment in White Sun that. Kind of riffs on that in the sense of like, how can he bring what he's discovered in this outpost home to the motherland, and he has like this daydream, this vision of sort of adopting the harem into the like <laughs> countryside of Russia, and they are all now outside of their their desert where They are now in you know traditional the, Russian. Exactly, yeah. they all look like Russian farmers and peasants. But it's a good point, you know, Marsh, about the idea of like it you know, in a, in
1: a way, like this character being sort of like Odysseus, you know, and, and just the, the long journey home and and that journey through this sort of empty, forbidding landscape. And it did lead me to reflect more on like the idea of like, why the fuck are cosmonauts always watching this movie? And I did think, well, you know, in a certain respect, it's like, think of the, the astronauts going to space, going to this this forbidding land. It's the final frontier. right. Yeah, the final frontier and just this this place that's like as, well, even more so, you know, dangerous than the desert and being just sort of like surrounded by nothing uh, and and longing for home and longing for Russia. And so even though I could I could never really specifically find anything other than people saying it's just a tradition and you know how some people are about traditions. but for me, I'm also sitting there and going like, it's he, it's kind of a poetic connection to the idea of a cosmonaut being out there, you know, yep. Russia spreading the revolution to space and longing for home in this uh, forbidding landscape, you know?
0: Yeah, and if they watched Durkee, uh before they went up to space, they would all crash and die. Uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, that's what happens in Durkey, right? And. Think we should uh, start by talking, yeah, uh, about. Uh, Uncle Pete and their flying trip uh, into the Kalahari. Because I thought, yeah, Uncle Pete was a very funny character. I was really vibing with him because he's this like roughneck from uh, the outskirts, as it were. And yeah. mm-hmm. uh, he comes to pick up Durky, You know, I don't know if the kid's got like TB or what, but they're right. like, we got to get this kid some desert air. It, you it's know, sort
1: of. It's sort of established early that he's kind of, you know, the sun is just this like little liberal sissy from the city you know and he's got like a little whoopy cough he's just like
2: if he, if, he, if you look at him funny pete literally accuses him of that when they mention because the, you know his dad is like uh
0: pete don't force him to go on hunt. he doesn't like to kill things <laughs> sissy like his dad huh you never wanted to hunt either. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, the town and the yeah, city. Yeah, the pianist. And
2: Dirk, know. he's just in the background. Like <coughs> <coughs> it's a nasty cough. He, yeah, he's a sickly yeah. lad. And he, he is given that little alarm clock because he's got, like, drugs that he needs to take at regular intervals. And so he has, like, an alarm clock set for <laughs> whenever he's got a his pills. Yeah,
1: every 4 hours apparently.
2: So, yeah. it's very sick.
0: Yeah, so it, it like just thinking about Uncle Pete really established the attitude towards, I guess, nature and to like the de- how the desert would be portrayed because there's a moment so they're taking this little plane ride and they they stop, you know, land and get some gas. Uh, yeah. And that's when Pete just like throws gasoline on the ground and yeah. like whips up some coffee. Yeah. And then he just whips around with his rifle and starts just, like, killing animals at will, like an old, like, (laughs) bison hunter. Yeah. Uh, And I'm like, holy shit. All right. So, like, I get – I already get what this movie is, right? It's like nature is going to fucking kill you if you don't kill it or whatever. It's kind of got – Got that mentality from from Uncle Pete on, you know,
1: yeah, i I loved Uncle Pete because, you know, his whole journey, which was very brief, was was so memorable for me because, you know, as we mentioned, like he he also then like fucking crashes the plane with this heart attack, and i I couldn't help but think that maybe the heart attack was a result of a man. Whose idea of refreshment is is dumping aviation fuel on the ground and just dropping dropping a coffee kettle on top of it, you know? Psychotic, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking, you know, maybe maybe spending your life uh, with with nothing but firearms and and um, a diet of coffee cooked in the fumes of burning airplane gas uh, might not have been the best <laughs> thing for your heart, you know, but. But he does then just just die, you know, and crash the fucking plane. Yeah,
0: look, I as a guy with high blood pressure, that's a man with high blood pressure. While but.
1: singing like an oddly, I felt like, like, I, again, I don't really know much about like South African culture, especially not at this time. But like, he's also on in the plane right before he crashes. He starts singing this weird song that seemed to me like an odd kind of like patriotic Perhaps like apartheid anthem or something. Yeah, right. And then yeah. He just has a heart attack and crashes the plane. It's like Uncle Pete, man, <laughs>
2: he fucking lived
1: hard and fast. Know
2: you the land where the spring a uh, land with its
0: graceful and
1: wondrous Oh boy. Oh, the country and
2: world for me. <sighs> yeah, he, he really did. And then, so, when they do crash, you know, Durkey does... And it's a brutal fucking plane crash. I gotta say, like, the effects on that plane crash were,
1: like, pretty fucking impressive. Yes, and
0: yet, uh, Durkey is basically fine. He's got a little dribble of blood on his temple. Yeah, And yeah. the dog... By the way, who he brought with him, Lolly, the dog, is also just totally unscathed from this crash. But before we before we get into durkey's lonely journey, I do want to highlight, look, I, I don't think this movie is particularly well made, but I do I do like the desert photography, and I also like the inner cutting sound stuff between the father and son which is established in that plane ride where the father at home he has a big concert you know the, the following day so he's mm-hmm. at home and he's just like playing you know Franz Liszt or whatever and it's like intercutting between him playing Liszt and then them flying in the desert uh, and it does establish right away this like the cinematic and psychic connection between father and son that's going to be playing out throughout the rest of the film. So we do really get that connection. And I do think some of like the sound interplay was, was quite creative. It's kind of bridging that gap.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. There is like the spiritual connection between father and son (laughs) that is like brought to life through the cutting (laughs) yeah not through the performance no certainly not through the performance but it is one of the few successes of the film so when when crashes well when Pete crashes and Durkee starts calling out to his dad on on the radio there is that also
0: the radio's unscathed
2: yeah radio's working right so yeah planes crash everything's broken but radio's working Durkee's okay and dog's okay and so initially there's this like rapid cutting between the two of them as they're talking and they they don't realize you know oh, Durkee hasn't shit's
0: crazy Sorry. yeah
2: Durky like it doesn't take his thumb off of the uh the walkie talkie so he's just like screaming with excitement at hearing his father's voice after this traumatic event and the father at the same time is also just like overwhelmed to hear that you know Durky is all right there's this insane, like, pair of close-ups on both of their eyes uh, that are just like soaked with glycerin tears. <laughs> um, and it's just like it, they cut so fast that it almost feels like they're on top of each other. And it's just like wet eyes of Durkee and his father as they're like jubilantly announcing the, that he survived, essentially.
1: Yes, I can hear you. Dad, the air is Boy, call. I'm so happy. Are you coming we to them, you on the us? You must come quickly and take home. Dad, on Dad on I didn't get you first. I was in a room for a week, but you were making such a and I didn't hear Then I heard you. Then I heard you. Are you coming to the us? You and Durkee's home. Then I
2: heard you. I Where are you? He can't hear you. He's still pressing the button. But then eventually, you know, the the supervisor there, like, warmly tells the father, like, oh, don't, you know, don't worry. He'll he'll have to learn it for himself to take his thumb off. And and eventually he does. And, you know, they give him instructions. They tell him how to use the walkie-talkie. But then as they initially start to send out a team to search for him you know they're like okay we got to keep him occupied like you know does he know his his timetables and they're like yeah yeah he could he could start doing that so Durkee starts reciting his multiplication tables
0: and that's where the movie lost no I'm just
2: (laughs) yeah well it does prove to be a fool's errand on their end uh, because once he's doing you know like uh six times twelve, that's when they realize like, oh damn, uh like he's really running the batteries uh out of that <laughs> out of that walkie talkie. There's sort of like two presences in that room
1: the, with the radio, like the, the command center for like rescuing Durkey. There's there's <laughs> Smitty Who is this, like, (laughs) more, you know, yes, kind of gentle figure that is trying to, like, keep everyone calm and say, don't worry, he's going to figure everything out and, you know... Don't worry. Like this is he's gonna learn and he'll be fine and he's he's a he's a strong young boy or whatever. Like he clearly has no idea who this kid is, right? But but he's like this like calming presence. But then there is this sort of like military officer or police officer or something who is like extremely high keyed and and much more. I think like just nasty about everything where he's kind of just like, tell the fucking idiot to get his thumb off the radio or whatever, you know? And Smitty is like this, like this calming figure. So there's even some, some sort of tension that's there between Mm -hmm. these sort of two presences. One guy who seems to think like, it's this, this kid doesn't stand a fucking chance, this officer. And then Smitty, who is also this kind of like guru of the desert, you know, that's sort of like taking the father aside and kind of giving him the whole, don't worry. He keeps saying like, "Your son's not gonna just lie down out there. Like, yeah. he he will he will grow." Which is, of course, ironic considering what
2: eventually ends up happening. But we'll <laughs> yeah. get to that. <laughs> we'll
1: yeah, yeah. That.
2: It's true. The the military guy. You can sense his. He's like, "Ah, oh, shit!" The moment he hears Dirkie he say, "Are you coming to fetch us?" <laughs> yeah, this guy is from the get go. Like, this is fucking bullshit. And I
1: gotta send helicopters out after this idiot. You know? Yeah. Like, look, they this uh... kid's toast.
0: Yeah, they spent a lot of money looking for Durkey. let's yeah. just put it that way. Yeah.
2: But so, you know, what ends up happening is they realize that Pete went so far off course that they're going to have to start over the next day and, like, send out more helicopters to comb the area. So Durkey's going to have to, like, soldier on on his own through the night. And they say, like, durkey you got to have the walkie-talkie off because you're running the juice slow. He's like, but I'll hang out. Dad decides to just, like, sit by the radio throughout the night. And that's when we get our first moment of that psychic connection between father and son where durkey is suddenly awoken at the sight of a hyena. And that's when the father wakes up as well. He senses Way out there in the Kalahari, he senses that a hyena has arrived on the scene. And I loved, again, that
1: that officer, that, like, military dude, because, like, when he gets wind of it, when Durky like, lets him know what's happening, he just, like, screams, it's a dirty hyena! <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? Is this guy so keyed up. He's also must be drinking the, that coffee cooked in aviation fumes, like, right, yeah. or whatever. Like, that guy's just keyed up and so yeah it sets Durky into like a, a, a panic you know as as he's got mm-hmm. this hyena that is is you know potentially threatening him and of course Smitty explains uh hyenas are cowardly creatures and you know don't worry like as long as he he does something you know make a fire get get something going and the, you'll scare off the hyena and then of course like the sickly idiot kid Total uh,
0: dirk move.
1: Total dirk move. He he thinking again about, you know, Pete and already a lesson, you know, showing us his 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 process of learning in this environment, he grabs the the can of gas that he had seen Pete use and he he dumps it on the ground and, and makes a fire. But uh in his awkwardness and in his just general sort of pathetic quality that he carries with him through this desolate land uh he, he ends up dropping the can of gas on the fire
0: and blowing the shit out
1: of the plane just blowing yeah,
0: everything up you fucked up yeah you blew up the plane and you
2: know it's funny when that actually happened one of my first thoughts was like oh that would have been like a clever way of trying to find him is like sending out a bunch of helicopters in the middle of the night and telling Durkey to blow up the plane so that they could like look for a massive fire I mean just the fact that he had that giant gas canister would have probably been a pretty good way to signal Where he was, but that was something that they they never considered. There's a lot of things they didn't consider,
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) like literally and philosophically, because there is a great moment too where uh, I think it's the you know the military guy He's like, you know, in the red desert, no one can live, Mm. and I'm thinking like. Pretty sure people lived there for like twenty thousand years or whatever, <laughs> yeah. you know, like and on a lot of them before they were like forcibly resettled by your government, you know. Yeah. Um. So there's a lot of yeah, there is, you know, that sort of. They are yeah, they are kind of clueless uh, in in uh, strategy as to rescuing and maybe some larger uh, some larger issues
2: there because the, he makes that claim too. He's like, well, Derky will be heading south. Like, it's the only way, you know, he could go. And he specifically calls out those red dunes as, like, that would be the end of Durkey if he decides to finally <laughs> traverse the red dunes and see if there's... <laughs> if, if beautiful uh, Johannesburg is on the other side. You know? Yeah, and
0: that's when the film turns into, like, part nature film. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. we should point out, Durkey's journey from there as he's blown up the damn plane <laughs> he's like, all he's got he has like a suitcase you know uh, he's got some clothes yeah uh, he's got a dog
1: which I love the clothes by the way you guys noticed when they were like you know it's gonna be very cold in the desert turkey you gotta layer up put on clothing Puts on a robe right he, he like looked like one of the fucking sisters from Grey Gardens like <laughs> he pulled out of that suitcase I was like this little fop I'm like I hated this kid so much and I'm I was like,
2: that's uh, when
0: you pack to Macaulay go with your Culkin ass kid, dude. <laughs> yeah, to like- go with your
2: tough ass uncle. Yeah, like- it's so it's so funny that the director cast his own son and like spend so much time in the film just talking about how he, he's not very strong. You know, like the father's <laughs> yeah. just defeated and hunched over, talking to these military men, just being like, "Dirk, Dirkie's not very strong." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, what did Dirkie think when he saw the movie? You know. <laughs> oh God! Well, it gets well, worse he, from he, there. Yeah, yeah, well, like... he
0: does. Get, he has his savvy moments, but.
2: Yeah, but I mean, initially he like it seems like it's a total lost cause until his dog, who he does have actually quite a nice little sweater for for those d- dark and cold nights. When his dog does dig in the sand and finds like a little gushing spot of water, so Durky is able to actually hydrate. Initially, when th- that's sort of like his first success after he's set out on his own is really well, the dog's success. Yeah, the the right. dog's success, a team success. But yeah, thanks, thank God for the dog. Oh no, I'm I'm giving I'm giving the
1: dog so much more credit here. So as dirty then now is forced to start like trying to trek his ass out of there. Like that dog is really kind of like pushing him along, leading the way, keeping him out of danger. And and he is now, you know, for basically the remainder of the film being stalked by this hyena which which follows yeah. him at every at every step. And really that dog saved his ass multiple times. You know, I just kept thinking, like, this pathetic little shit is just, you know, he's got the military out looking for him. He he blew up the fucking plane with the radio. Like, he's just got his, like, yeah, his, like, velveteen robe on. And he's, like, wandering around with his cough syrup, you know? <laughs> and the dog's finding water, scaring off the hyena. I just was like, this kid doesn't deserve any of this fucking help. And
2: it's funny, too, because then the main conversation that's occurring like back at the base is you know with when there is that guy who's con- you know trying to give encouragement to the father saying like well he won't he won't just lay down and die you know like he 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 has motivation to keep going like he knows how much you love him that he he knows you're looking for him and his father like his main concern and fear is like oh, I don't know If Durkee knows how much I love him, that's it's men have a hard time (laughs) letting each other know how much they love him. And then they develop this elaborate scheme in order. They think, okay, if we can somehow convince Durkee that I love him by dropping 2 million pamphlets out in the desert that say in bold print durky this is your father i love you we are looking for you that that will be the like motivating factor that will like keep durky keep him charged and being a survivalist out here in the harsh landscape
1: yeah those pamphlets th-
2: I, I, I like looked away for a second, you know, when
1: like there's like a like an insert of him like looking at it. and and I just like something happened in the room, and I kind of like looked away for a second. And I was convinced that in my like the corner of my eye, when I caught sight of the pamphlet, it said, like, Drky, I love you, don't die.' I guess so. You're telling me it said we're looking for you? But I honestly thought. Well, after, no. I, yeah, I was like no, convinced look. it said don't
0: die. <laughs> But when Durkee sees it, it's been torn, like it's been torn. So he only sees the top, which is the part that says, I love you. But we should introduce via this leaflet. So this is an ongoing saga where, yes, the father is like, we need to dump two million pieces of paper into the desert, you know? (laughs) Uh, And he starts to develop a relationship with this journalist character, this young woman.
2: Who initially asks him if the whole thing is a hoax. Yeah, Yeah. and
0: that's my favorite moment uh, in the movie. I burst out laughing. The press conference? I had to explain to Kyle what I was doing because there's this press conference like the first day or second day that durkey has gone missing and everyone's interviewing the dad and he's, I guess, a known classical pianist, allegedly, uh, who has a concert or whatever and this woman uh, interjects and is like... And if they don't find him? No, they must find him.
1: I hope it isn't just a publicity stunt. No, it is not a publicity stunt.
0: And and he has the most, like, earnest, like, Brissonian blank response. <laughs> it's, like, so bizarre. <laughs> anyway, did, yeah, I've yeah. fucking started to lose it at that moment. He, his
2: performance in general is quite Brissonian. Yeah,
0: it's too, it's too real uh, in, in certain ways. But yeah. so anyway, he gets entangled with this journalist who then, you know probes deeper into the story and becomes a, you know, a concerned third party. But this comes into play with the leaflets because she it's going to cost like a shitload of money to print two million leaflets, obviously. And they're talking about like mortgaging the house and selling everything they own so they can print these leaflets to find Durkey And the journalist takes it to her editor to like get him a deal on the printing. And the editor is begrudgingly accepts But then rejects it because he won't print, I love you. He objects to the personal message at the top. He's like, I'm not printing this crap, (laughs) and that's the last of it. Like, they don't do it. So it's like the implication then is that the father like sold everything he owned to print these two million leaflets. (laughs) But, but (laughs) then he kind of like develops a relationship with this journalist, which I think has romantic implications because, of course, the dad is uh, a widower, Uh, Mm -hmm. so he's ladies. This man whose son is lost is on the open market. And that becomes, yeah, part of the the end of the film. But we should talk about turkey's journey because i really do right. think look will I, I gotta give props to this film for absolutely delivering the red desert i mean it yes. is and it, it's gorgeous like it, it is well composed and framed and for all the film's other deficiencies that documentary aspect the ethnographic nature aspect of this film like is good it looks awesome like
2: Yeah, I agree. The the, the desert looks really good. Yeah, there are some incredible shots when he's like scavenging for food. Like particularly, he climbs a really wild looking tree with the huge nest on it with a a nest that is like three times the size of him and he's just like sticking his arm inside this nest and pulling out all these little eggs that he's then like sticking in his pocket throughout the film he's like finding things and putting them in his pocket yeah they're like all like tiny little eggs that he cooks um like on a stone it is like quite resourceful i love later in the film when he finds he starts like going after um ostrich eggs and oh, like yeah. that part's incredible because he like they're i mean they're just so huge and they especially look so huge in the tiny hands of young little derky and he breaks the egg on the rock and then the, the egg starts like it's just there's so much yolk and there's so much egg and it's just it starts like flowing down this rock um, and then he uses the shell as a bowl to then like scoop the egg back into it and like catch it like this little egg waterfall at the end of, of the rock uh, and he, he's just like we're having scrambled eggs tonight won't that be tasty <laughs> <laughs> and then he cooks it <laughs> but no it is and then like my favorite moment of all those scavenging sequences is like a little bit later in the film when he's like completely sun-baked and scarred and his like his lips are chapped and he's like boiling. He looks like Clint Eastwood in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly when he's like drifting through the dunes. And Turkey's just like shoving his hand in this ant's nest and he's just like <laughs> sipping and eating the ants as his, as his dog is like very hesitantly watching. And he's just like, it's, it's nice the ants. It's it's nice. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah,
0: and then there's a scene where, like, the score gets really brassy, and it's, like, really poetic, as they just dump a bunch of paper into the desert.
2: <laughs> it's really crazy, yeah.
0: I can't get over how much it was just, like, a celebration of, yeah, dropping how many uh, you know, tons of paper just <laughs>
2: into nature. It's, like, two million sheets. Yeah, it's just, like, this mass littering event. It's so psychotic. And then they even show, like, they show animals, like, eating the paper and it, like, not being good. Like, how many fucking plants and animals that they mess up like just again the resources that are like wasted and trying to and like the, the harm yeah. done just to track down little derky and honestly like I, I as the film went on like that military officer to me became the most
1: sympathetic character because <laughs> yeah. he, as he just gets increasingly exasperated by like this whole s- s- like situation and yes the fact that now they're asking for like we need twenty-five more helicopters, you know. And he's kind of like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Like this kid's dead!" Like, like <laughs> and if
2: not, he should be yeah, dead. Yeah, because two weeks have gone by at that point. Yeah, and like
1: honestly, you know, when you when you talk about this whole weird thing that was at the, the the sort of core of the film about like, you know, this this question of like, do you know how much daddy loves you? And and also in a weird way, like. <laughs> can you prove that you love me? can you prove that you love daddy uh, because then like like I mean <laughs> this kid just gets tortured yeah. you know tortured to prove his love for his father because if the whole thing is like he'll survive if he loves me hard enough like it's this weird thing where like the pain that this kid continues to go through like and it it, it gets increasingly worse. Uh, as the film went on, like, I really did start to go, like, this is, like, fucking child abuse. like It's th- insane. Yeah. Like, he gets, uh, you know, later in the film, like, he gets, uh, like, snake venom. Yeah. The snake comes up and, like, spits venom in his eye. And now he's got this, like, horribly swollen eye where he can barely see. And now he's, like, walking in a circle with this dog. And he's, like, saying when he's walking in that circle, isn't he saying something like, I love my daddy. I love daddy. Like, isn't he saying, like, my yeah. daddy loves me? Like And he's just wandering in a circle. My father loves me. He will find me. My father loves me. He
2: will find me. He
0: will find me.
2: And this is shortly after the dog had been like almost gored by the hyena and he himself, the dog itself is like bleeding. So he's like, yeah, his eyes are completely swollen and caked over and he's carrying his bloody dog talking about how much he loves his daddy.
0: Yeah, and I mean,
1: that's... (laughs) And then gets bit by a scorpion.
2: Yep, and immediately collapses.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is a nonstop yeah series of indignities for Dirk, and (laughs) uh, you know, at one point too, like because of course he, you know, he does fight back in various situations, and I think that's the other like element of like become a man, you know, become a man now, and I and I underline, you know, he's becoming a man through violence, Mm -hmm. right, because he's just forced he's just plopped in like the harshest place in the universe and
1: this is like like classic Walt Disney's version of the hills have eyes you know if you think (laughs) about it it's like it's like the incredible journey meets the hills of eyes like that's what I was thinking it's the same idea where it's like you know, the, 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 the liberal idiot, you know, out in the harsh world has no idea all the dangers that are out there. And the only way you can survive them, yes, is by toughening up and shooting and fighting and killing and, and, and you know, proving how much you love your daddy.
2: Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's
1: that's what I, I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, this is, <laughs> this is a twist it's true. shit.
2: It's true. Yeah, because they keep saying the desert will make him stronger.
0: And, like, it does to a point, but then he totally backslides and just gets owned by the fucking desert like because at the end of the day like he is straight up rescued he's like gonna die um but he's rescued it's not that like he gets stronger and does something savvy to get himself out of it but i do want to highlight like one moment in this film that has nothing to do with anything that i uh want to see if you guys noticed in one of those helicopter shots while those guys are searching for him did you see the the pilot had two cigarettes in his mouth (laughs) I was cracking up because I was like these guys are just doing whatever the fuck they want you know this helicopter pilot like either smoking two cigarettes at once or lighting for him and his co-pilot but either way I'm like this director has no control over the helicopter man I was
2: cracking up yeah they were doing him a favor for sure oh 100% (laughs) but yeah so yeah Durkey gets poison spat in his eyes he gets stung by a scorpion And he's knocked out cold But then he's found By <laughs> a man from the bush A bushman arrives With his son And they pick up and they take him out into the dunes, and they they mend his wounds. They they make some paste. They uh, put some stuff together to like both clear up all the venom, to heal his burns, his his, his open sores, and, and he makes a rather quick recovery. I mean, I guess time is a bit compressed in that sequence, but it, I mean he he does wake up looking much healthier than, than he did when when he was found. But of course, you know, Durkey being this posh white boy from from, uh, from South Africa, he's got some preconceptions about people who, who live outside of the city. And when he wakes up and they offer him some wonderful looking meat that he does immediately start chowing down on, he then becomes aware that he doesn't see his dog nearby. And he calls out to the dog who does not reply. So Durkee's immediate assumption is that they cooked his dog and, and, and <laughs> fed it to him. Yeah. And he fucking freaks out. He loses his mind. He just starts screaming at them, accusing them. Horrible. He bursts out of the the shelter that they created for him. And then he commits what we later learn is a terrible taboo. He throws rocks at his saviors and that is a big no-no at least according to the film i
1: mean i think a no-no in general you yeah. know that was what was also funny to me because they're like you know it was a big it's a big cultural insult to those people to throw stones at them and i'm like it'd be a fucking insult if you threw stones at me after i helped you and i <laughs> i'm just some dumbass from chicago i'd be so mad at
2: you you know
1: yeah i, I would do exactly what they did which is they like fuck this kid and they like leave him you know like right that's the thing.
2: Derky climbs up the dune and then does see his dog, and his dog had just like given birth to some puppies, who he then stuffs in his pocket. He's got like little fresh pups in. It and yeah. He's got
0: it in his pocket. That was yeah, an interesting turn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the dog
1: was pregnant the whole time. Like
0: yeah, well, you know, and what follows after that? So you know, the the father and son that saved his life are you know pretty mad about him throwing rocks at them and so they just leave uh and he tries to follow them and sort of, you know, you know, what, you know, help me or whatever. Yeah. Sorry for thinking you cooked my dog. <laughs> yeah. And uh but it does then enter into I think my favorite sequence of the entire film, which is that following sequence which uh gets really really intense and it's got this like trancey kind of like quality to it. The film really mm-hmm. goes like like music video, uh, like slow, slow music video vibe in that moment where yeah. like the father and son are walking and Durkee's walking and it's like droning out like that. I was like really vibing with uh, with that sequence.
2: Uh, it was almost psychedelic.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know,
1: after, after, uh, the entire film where Smitty of course has been, has been telling and, uh, the, the, you know, Durkey's father and reassuring him that, that his son is, is a fighter and he's, he's not just going to lie down out there and die. durkey does, uh lie down and and start to die (laughs) he he just just finally collapses he's had enough he he lies down and and gives up and is in a again very beautiful shot and sequence like slowly buried in the
0: sand dune yeah Ah. swallowed
2: up by the dune itself that was
0: premium, like, dune content, oh, for sure. Like, yeah. he rolls down the
2: dune, and then it's like, the sand is just, yeah. It's like
1: liquid that starts yeah. to wash over him. Yeah,
2: and it's, it's a great moment with the dog, too, because the dog tries to run down to get to Dirky, but because the sand is so treacherous, the dog falls farther down. And it is like, you, you feel, it all it felt, felt very real the threat of the dune in that moment
0: yeah and then the dad's just like playing piano (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah
1: And then I, I, I don't really remember how, but somehow they, they've discovered that
0: they know now more or less where he is. Yeah, they discover the wreck. And so then they sort of like, you know, work backwards from there and figure out. Because initially they weren't searching the Red Dunes because it would just be ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Only and then, an idiot fop from the city would wander over there. Yeah. You know? And so ultimately, yeah, that's of course where he is. And so they figure it out
2: after they discover the wreck of the plane the father then like heads out into the, to the desert and they're driving around and they come across the the other father the man who had rescued durky and then who durky tossed stones at as a cruel reaction and um they so the, he's he's got Smitty along as a translator, and and Smitty discovers like he knows the general area where your son is. They left him behind because they threw Durkee threw rocks at him. Yeah. Uh, they he can take us out to sort of where they remembered Derky being. So they, they 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 get him in the truck. They start driving around, and then they reach a point where he says like he's gonna be around over here, and that's when Smitty says like hey. Uh, the the truck's not going to be able to get up that dune. I'm going to have to go around. I'm going to have to go another way. So he's like, here. So he gives the father a gun. He's like, use this to signal where you are, and this is how I'm going to track you down. And that's, you know, what happens is that Durkey's father does find him. He finds him buried in the sand. And so he picks up Durkee, initially thinking he's going to leave the dog behind, but then, you know, he sees that <laughs> the dog had just given birth. So, and
1: even worse, dude, he,
2: he's about to shoot. He's about to kill the he's dog. He's about to shoot
1: the dog. He pulls out this revolver that Smitty gave him, and he points it at the dog, and he's like, "Wow, well, I might as well shoot that fucking wounded dog. <laughs> I
0: was like, God. Yeah, that was insane. Uh, and I want to bring up, too, that specifically, like, the the San father, when they're translating Talking when he's talking to Smitty uh, and the dad, he specifically says, uh, The boy is possessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's possessed. Yeah. And I was thinking, I agree, my man. Yeah. I agree.
1: Possessed by a real fucking wimp spirit. That's what he's possessed by.
2: <laughs> it almost ends on what I thought would have been like a pretty shocking, ambiguous final moment where he does so he has to take his shirt off to wrap up the dog and he like ties him to Durkey's uh, seemingly lifeless corpse I mean Durkey's breathing but he he's carrying Durkey but he can't find Smitty and he doesn't hear the truck and he starts firing the gun into the air and there's no there's no side of him and you think in this final moment like is this how the film is going to end like now he's lost in the red desert with his son, but as the title card comes up at the end, we hear the honking horn of the of the trucks, so you know it's gonna be okay. I I also again
1: like just kind of like looked away for a second when that whole sequence with the dad and the gun and the dog and and Durky was going on, and for a second I could swear I was like. He's pointing the gun at Durkey. He's going to just put Durkey out of his misery. Like, I really did. For a second, thing, maybe I was like, oh shit. Like I was like, this is a dramatic. He was going to go full searchers, like, you know? Yeah, like, like yeah. I, I, the best thing I can do for Durkey at this point is just to put my son out of his misery. And I just, for a second, like, I had a flash. Like, that's the movie
0: we were watching. Then I realized, like, oh, okay, yeah, it's not. That's not the movie we're watching. No, else. we're yeah. watching the incredible journey with Derky this time yeah. instead of the
1: incredible Durky. dogs and
0: cats. Yes, the incredible Derky. Yeah, I,
1: I'm not gonna lie. I I hated this kid. I hated his voice, his constant shrieking. I mean, it really is like a shriek whenever he yells the dog's name or yells about the hyena or whatever. Like I was. I yeah, was, when he goes, damn
2: you, you beast. Yeah. <laughs> so, Oh
1: my God. I actively was, I will admit, uh, rooting against Turkey the entire time. Ryan, I so. also
0: had a hostile attitude towards him. Oh,
2: I did as well. And the film almost delivers on that at the end. That's what was so frustrating. Yeah. I'm like, Oh, it would be so awesome if this ended and we're sort of left with the thought that now Durky and his father have been swallowed up by the dunes. Yeah. You know, again,
1: if we're also like comparing the two films, you know, bringing them together, like it's it's so much more easy to root for Sukov, uh, you know, the great hero <laughs> of the Red Army, rather than the spoiled, privileged. Uh, uh, you know, product of apartheid, South Africa, you know? Yeah,
2: no <laughs> doubt about that. Yeah, Kul cool Sukov who will, like, light his cigarette with the wick of a lit dynamite and then toss that off into the water. Yeah,
0: and, okay, so now I want to point out that the dad, like, kind of gets together with the journalist in the end, and that's the dark psychological implication, too, where it's also like, yes, i got my son back, and now I can have this wife and Mm -hmm. you're just like, what is going on with this film? And what is it, you know, what is this projection? Cause like, man, those scenes really, I was like, what are we doing here in these scenes? Yeah. Like, why are they here? What's going on? Durky is dying. Durkee's buried in the sand. <laughs> like the camera should be on him. And like the journalist is like coming over to the dad's house. It was like just totally, totally yeah. baffling. But I mean, I guess that is, you know, truly, uh, you know, it's a, a, a film, a work of a free man, or whatever you know. Like <laughs> it's this guy's movie. You know, it's he's in it. His son is in it. We all saved Durky and got uh, got a wife out of it. Yeah, you know?
2: yeah. I lost my mind in the opening credits when it said introducing Durky in Durky. <laughs>
1: If that, Marsh, by your definition, is the product of a free man, then I I will gladly take, you know, some, some Soviet some state.
0: Some state-sponsored, yeah, you know.
1: Bureaucrat standing behind a director with a Makarov pistol in his hand, you know. <laughs> I'll take yeah, that. Anytime. As
0: long as they sing, uh, you know, Your your Honor, Lady Luck, uh, yeah. then... We're good. Truly, you know. truly for me,
1: I, I will go so far as to say the most twisted film I think I've watched yet for this
2: podcast. It really <laughs> It wasn't... is a Le film Maudit. There is no doubt about that. It is um it's a cursed thing. Yeah.
1: All right. Well Marsh, uh these
2: were our uh Sandy Sandy films, our our our
1: Dune Dune movies. <laughs> so what about you? When you think of <laughs> When you think of uh, sand between your toes in the in the movies, what what comes to mind? Well,
0: you know, certain scenes come to mind, like the Zabriskie Point orgy, uh, or even you know, Gus Van Sant's Jerry, a film I I like a lot, which is kind of a, a good deserty uh, wandering film. But my my pick to click has got to be. Nicholas Ray's bitter victory an odd choice because it's a you know classic Hollywood film with a lot of interior set work but they did actually go to Libya and shoot that film and Bitter Victory of course is uh, a black and white cinemascope World War II film where Richard Burton and Kurt Jurgens sort of have it out over Ruth Roman in the military setting and it involves one of my favorite Dune scenes ever where uh, Richard Burton and Kurt Jurgens, while they're in the same army and on the same team they're trying to kill each other in a sandstorm while on a clandestine mission uh because you know Jurgens is cucked and richard burton's got his ass you and know <laughs> uh, yeah and they're, and they're all wasted um and it's it's a great film i love it it's the classic nicholas ray movie so an odd choice but i i had to do it to him you know i love that movie i really like that movie. you guys delivered you know i i wanted to get sandy and uh I'm ready to take a dip, you know, oh, uh, yeah. and wash it all off after this episode. <laughs> I'm thirsty. I'm parched. <laughs> well, uh, it was my pick this week, but of course next week it is Andy's pick. So what do you have cooking for us this time? Well, um, I think myself, like a lot of uh,
1: Americans who are paying attention to the news right now, have been uh, uh, aware of a of a very... Um, Tumultuous trial that's currently taking place, which I, I don't really feel the need to get into right now. But it did inspire me to pick a topic that is uh, one of my favorites, which would be you know films set in a courtroom. So um, bring me films that are about controversial court cases. You know, I want want drama, I want uh, high stakes in the hallowed halls of the legal system. So bring me Disorder in the Court.
0: As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks everyone. Ваше благородие, господа. Мы с тобой, родня, давно. Вот какая штука. Письмецов клеверте. Погоди, не рви. Не везет мне в смерти, повезет в любви. Письмецо в кольверте, погоди не рви. Не везет мне в смерти, повезет в любви. Ваше благородие, госпожа удача, Для кого ты добрая, а кому? А чем? Девять граммов сердце постой, не зови. Не везёт мне в смерти, повезёт любви. Девять граммов в сердце постой, не зови. Не везёт мне в смерти, повезёт I want you to tell me what to write, how he can find water, how to find food... Excuse me, sir. You must
1: put there, I love you very much, and I will find you.